Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. And unfortunately, it is always Harry that has to deal with these things. There are literally no other competent magical <laughs> beings of justice in like a 50 mile radius of Chicago that can help with any of these huge problems. It's always Harry. I know. This is, well, this is kind of like an MCU problem where you're like, well, why didn't this superhero just come and help out earlier? You do later in the series to get exposed to some other capable people that like probably could have come and helped. And I think that there's some reasons why they didn't, but really they should have. Hello, Red Court Vampires, and welcome to another episode of Phantology. This is Steven, and I have Ben and Josh on the line with me to talk about another Dresden Files book. This is book three, Grave Peril. What's up, guys? Not much, Steven. Ha- happy to be with you. So I know we've gotten some feedback when it's just Ben and I on here, and that we uh, sound very similar, and that's because we're twins. And just know that I'm the better looking one. Mm-hmm. That'll be relevant once we start streaming. Thank you, Josh. Uh-huh, no problem. That's why Josh is the one that's uh, that's vying for a podcast instead of a live stream, if that tells you anything about his confidence. All right. On that note, if you like the content that Phantology is putting out, check us out on social media at Phantology Books. We're also online at www.phantologybooks.com and join our Discord to chat with us personally and also look to support us on Patreon if you really like what we're doing. Yeah. Steven, what, what do we have up on Patreon right now? Yeah, we have three different tiers. You have the Elyr tier the Knight's Radiant tier, and the Lord Dragon tier for those that are really supportive. And we have some, we're starting to roll out more exclusive content in the form of raw reactions from individual Phantology members. We also have access to Discord perks, and we're going to be starting up some live streams and even some trivia competitions. Yeah, I think the thing I'm most excited about are these live reactions that we have. We take sometimes video or just audio recordings of right when we finish a book, go and record it and put it up there on patreon for you guys yes if you really want to know what we think no filters patreon is the place to find out okay no filters on this review either of the third book of dresden files so we're really excited about dresden files right now because we just got news of two new books coming out in july and november you can fact check me there but i think i have this right finally right yeah that's right yeah peace talks and battleground books 16 and 17 if i'm not uh, if if i'm correct there and look this series really starts to take off once you get a few books into it daniel green one of our favorite youtubers is really gotten behind the series he recently named it his third favorite top three favorite fantasy series of all time so if you're on the fence about reading dresden files we strongly recommend it yeah at least even and i do i think we'll get more reactions from ben during this book yeah i mean i'm still kind of I'm sitting on the fence about it right now. There's like a little prelude on the the audiobook I listened to and it had an interview with the author and he said that this book was where he felt like he hit his stride. And so that was kind of interesting to me. Yeah, so let's transition into the book now. We're not going to do spoilers quite yet, but we will eventually. So this book I feel is where the plot, the overarching series plot really starts to take off. The first two were somewhat of one-offs And this book is where you get different factions joining the picture. You get some big players joining the series that are that are going to continue to 
to come up in later books, and you get some conflicts that are going to keep on going for several books. Yeah, and I felt like as somebody that hasn't read past this book, that's what it felt like. Um, There's a lot of throwbacks to the first book, and there are also not as many kind of one-off new dimensions that you're exposed to for the first time. So I could really agree with that. Yeah, just to name a few things, we have the Knights of the Cross coming onto the scene. We have the Never Never being entered. We have the Fairy, the Fey Realm, the She Realm, and we have the Vampire Courts. So a lot of things that are going to continue to just grow and grow as Harry gets more into each of them. Right, but you've been exposed to all those things in books one and two. Like we met some fairies, we, we were in the Never Never a little bit. So you were, you've seen these things. It made mention of his godmother in books one and two. And so they weren't brand new to this book, but you sure explored them a lot more. Yeah, I guess I just feel like this is the book where you get the sense of, hey, these things are important and they're going to continue to come up and I need to pay attention. Yeah, sure. I remember the first time his godmother was mentioned and it was almost like, oh, that's kind of a funny thing that we're never going to hear about again. And in this book, you you realize that you're going to hear a lot about her. So what what are some other uh, kind of characters that introduced in this book that you're excited about, Ben, without giving away spoilers or anything? Well, I think within the first couple of pages, Michael is introduced as a character and he's somebody that Josh, you had been kind of amping up a lot as one of possibly your favorite fictional characters of all time. And so that's interesting that he's kind of made an appearance. So but I'm sure we'll talk a lot about him. Yeah, that is super high praise, Josh. Top fictional characters of all time. He's a sidekick to Dresden, but you really love him. In this book, he's a little bit more of a sidekick, but he definitely has his character arc that he goes on throughout the series um, without giving like serious spoilers or anything. Yeah, we definitely can't do that character arc now because in this book, at least, he's just mostly introduced and you you find out some of what he's about, some of his backstory, and he's really going to be explored more in future books. Yeah. Yeah. Any other standouts for you, Ben? New characters that you feel like may be pretty impactful later on? I don't think so. I think that I was disappointed that the police chief didn't play more of a role this book. She kind of got taken out early on not like permanently but she was removed from the story early on you're talking about murphy right lieutenant karen murphy yeah definitely yes, not lieutenant the karen chief. Murphy. <laughs> definitely a name that you oh, should remember whatever <laughs> come on ben come on so i i also don't remember if this is the first time we've met father fort hill we've met him before right i don't think so this is the first time? I think this is the first book that Father Fort Hill appears, yeah. Okay. Because he appears in connection with Michael Carpenter. That's right. That's right. So he's another character that I enjoyed. And he's never, you know, that I remember a super, super main part of the series. But he's a cool character, I think. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to say that Michael Carpenter, the name kind of annoyed me. It almost sounds like Sabrina Spellman. You know what I mean? Like kind of a cheesy Halloween type name you know michael like the archangel and carpenter like jesus was a carpenter i don't know it's just i don't know come on okay so before i respond to that then let me just say we're doing spoilers now we're jumping into the plot and my response is look if you think that that name is too much then you don't understand the point of the dresden files it's supposed to be super tongue-in-cheek super over the top he is constantly just making fun poking fun at fantastical elements historical things 
but doing so in a lighthearted way. There are some moments later in the series that are so over the top and ridiculous, but that's what that's what makes them beautiful. Like if you've seen the trailer for the book trailer, that is for the new books, it totally embodies this. So Michael himself wields a sword that contains one of the nails from the cross that, you know, one of the nails that crucified Christ. It's stuff like that. Like he just totally embodies the stereotypical white knight, knight in shining armor. I understand that the character can do that, but I feel like agree to disagree. I mean, Harry Dresden, it's not like, I mean, I know he has middle names, but Dresden isn't like a a magical name. One of his middle names is literally Copperfield. <laughs> yeah, but that's because his parents, his dad was a traveling magician, right? Right, but his middle name is Copperfield. It's the same point. <laughs> well, Ben's point is that, no, the point is you have parents that can name you funny middle names or whatever. That's like somewhat common in the real world. But Carpenter as a, Michael Carpenter, anyway, hearing that kind of took me out of the book a little bit. Well, come on, Ben. I mean, Harry Potter, like everybody has a name like that. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's like a weakness of the series. It's kind of, like Steven said, a little tongue-in-cheek poking fun and expanding out the character a little bit. Okay, fair enough. So I'm going to have to give you guys both a critical fail on this for not noting that Thomas Wraith is going to be a character of note. You didn't think, Ben, in your read-through that Thomas was a character of note? Maybe I'll give you a pass, Josh, since... You might not remember details from back this far. Okay, so on. Thomas, that's the that's the vampire, right? That helps. Yeah, the white court vampire. So, I don't know. I could see him playing a role, but not like an outsider's role in other, in other books. Just like we were introduced to like a dragon at one point. That was kind of random. What do we know about Thomas by the ending of this book? I think all we know is that he's kind of, he was out of sorts with the other vampires with other vampire community i'm not sure why that might have been explained and i just kind of missed it right josh is trying to probe for something specific about him that we don't know yet josh okay. to answer your question <laughs> okay yeah we're not we're not doing spoilers there all we really knew this time is that he really liked this one girl that was kind of crazy for some reason yeah so so he's with a human justine that he appears to have like real feelings for which would be at odds with the white court because the white court vampire is more of like the Edward Cullen type where they feed off of emotional power and they're a bit of like nymphomaniacs. So that emotional and sexual energy is what really fuels them. They are described as having like a demon inside of them that needs to take up that energy. And if they run out of it, they will die. So that's what we know about the white court thus far. And I believe Thomas is at odds with his father, right? That's explained as well. Possibly. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, so he is sent there to the party, to the Red Court party, oh, as right. like a representative from mm-hmm. the White Court, but he's really meant as an insult because he's somewhat of like the outcast son. Yeah, he's not like the bastard, but that's kind of the way that they described it, right? It's like as if a king sent his bastard to do his bidding. Yeah, yeah, that that's a really good explanation. Right, so I, I think he's a cool character, for sure. And I feel like the fact that he kind of came to Harry's aid when he didn't necessarily have to for Justine's sake, and the fact that he, like, isn't very apologetic about his vampire needs and wants, it makes him interesting. So, yeah, I was a fan of him. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's fair that you didn't realize how important he would be quite yet, but he's going to come up in future books. I uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here. But I think he's in every single one of the future books and plays a very big part. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, so watch for him more. 
Okay, so let's get into our content warning. If you've listened to our Dresden Files episodes before, you'll know that there is some content in Dresden Files to watch for. Ben, remind us exactly what we can expect here. Yeah, so I didn't think that there's as much swearing as the second book in this one, but there's still your your typical swearing. It's not like every other word, but it's it's present. There was a lot of, not a lot of like gratuitous sex, but a lot of male gaze going on. Basically, if you've read the first two books, you know what to expect. You're not going to be surprised by anything. I would say even more probably in this book with the vampires. Anytime you get these Dresden Files books that are into the more supernatural, they are definitely more free sexually, we'll say. And you know, it's funny because I feel like since I've been picking up on this, there's a lot of people on Twitter that kind of make fun of the way that uh, the Dresden Files are written in regards to sexualizing women. I found a Twitter page that was called like men write men writing women or something like that. And there's frequent references to Justin files on that, on the Twitter page. Yeah, I guess we, I mean, that's what it is. I, I don't know if we can apologize for that. Yeah. We've talked about it. We've talked about it and it's a debate to be had and it's a fair debate to be had, but it comes with reading the series. Yeah. Check out our review of the first book if you're interested. Yeah. Uh, other than that, there wasn't as much violence actually. I felt like this time. There was more magical violence, for sure. I can't yeah. remember how graphically things were described, but there's some pretty explosive magical stuff being thrown around. He he had like a nightmare that he kind of got his guts ripped into for a little bit, and that I think that was the worst of it. Right, and like the second book is when the werewolves attacked and like gutted an entire police department, right? So there's nothing on that level, I don't think, in this book. Let's get into plot points right now. Let me just say that Harry takes out an entire compound of vampires, he, basically blows up an entire building. So I guess we're not as offended by that because vampires are just animated corpse monster type things that are fairly evil. So we're fine to see those die. Well, yeah, that was interesting though. And so I guess we're getting into like plot points now, but he might have killed innocent people at that point, which he spends about a page dealing with emotionally and then moves on. But we don't know if these moved on completely. And we've heard references before this that like if you use the powers of creation, i.e. magic, to destroy life, then that is like betraying your magical oaths or whatever. So that was kind of interesting to me. So let's talk about the lead up to that decision. What what happened and why did he get to that point? I'm I'm trying to remember. I remember vague outlines of it. Yeah, so he was trying to find out find out who was controlling this nightmare. As part of that, he decided to go to this party that he was invited to by the vampires. And he knew that he was kind of putting himself in danger, but he had Michael by his side. And so they they thought that they were going to be fine. Before we go too far into the party, let's discuss the vampires real quick. So there are three different courts of vampires that we know about right now. The red court, the black court, the white court. We've talked about the white court. The red court from my understanding, are they're not human, so they're not reanimated humans at all. They are monsters that have quite a bit of foothold across the world. They have like international holdings and wealth, etc. But really behind their guys, they're these like flabby, gross-looking goblin-type things. And they prey upon blood, as vampires typically do. But they really pride the ability to suppress that urge. So the higher-up vampires are kind of like refined gentlemen and ladies, if you will. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting take on vampires with the Red Court, and especially later on in the series. 
they get very interesting. But in this book, I do remember, you know, kind of thinking it was interesting that the Red Court, who are underneath monsters, are actually kind of almost the most sophisticated one of the types of vampires in Dresden Files. Yeah, that's a good point, because the White Court, we know, are just slaves to this sexual energy. And then the Black Court, these are your Count Dracula-type vampires. In fact, there's even a joke that the author of Dracula basically wrote like a how-to guide on how to kill Black Court vampires. And so there's not very many of them by this time. And these are reanimated humans. They are your typical like afraid of garlic, afraid of sunlight. There's not very many of them. But the ones that do remain are super powerful. A little aside here, did you guys watch the Netflix BBC Dracula that came out earlier this year? I did not, no. It was interesting. It was an interesting take on Dracula. It was, I think, Stephen Muffet or Muffart. I don't know how to say his name, but he's the one that does like Sherlock and some of Doctor Who and stuff, but he was leading it. So it was a very, his style of show. It was kind of a crazy ride if you ever have like, it's. it felt more of like a Halloween type show. I don't know why they released it in January or February, but anyway, it was interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. So Ben catches up now that we're familiar with the vampire courts. Harry starts off the book chasing this nightmare ghost thing and now is invited to this party that he has to attend. He's obligated to attend as a member of the White Council. He tells Susan not to attend. Right. This is going to be, this is going to come back to bite him. But uh, yeah, so Susan wants to attend because she's a reporter. He tells her not to attend. She's obviously going to go anyway. And then we go into the action as follows. Yeah, so they kind of find out that Susan is there. Because she had forged a invitation that she found on Harry's nightstand. And so she's there, but Harry's invitation only includes two people. And so they're kind of at an impasse where Harry has to decide if he's going to use that, his past to include uh, Michael or Susan. And so they are forced to start fighting to get out. And it's at this point that you think Thomas might help them, but he doesn't. He just kind of leaves, and then Harry, using the impending doom of Susan, uh, conjures enough magic to basically decimate the whole mansion, complete with the innocent humans that the vampires were kind of preying on. And they might have died anyway, but we don't really know. And let me just mention that Thomas was going to help them, and then because of the pressure put on him, by Justine's impending doom, he decides to actually go side with Justine. But then he makes a noble play by rescuing Lydia, who is one of the innocents that this is part of the whole plan that the Red Court had. They were going to undo the magic of of Michael's sacred sword by sacrificing an innocent spellcaster. But Thomas saves her and the sword, and then they meet up later on after after the Big Bang has happened here. So I think that this is interesting because it has some foreshadowing for the rest of the series. And it also uh, lays out some of the character motivations, specifically with Thomas, that his first and not only, but definitely his first priority is Justine, right? Like even more than his loyalty to Dresden at this point, whatever loyalty that is, his loyalty is primarily to Justine. But it sets him up as a character who has some loyalty. You know, unlike these other vampires who just are completely self-serving and prey upon humans, he has some connection, some real human connection to someone else. Right. 
And then I think it was interesting that he uses his love of Susan to completely destroy this whole conclave of vampires. Right, Stephen? Yeah, he. I guess he says, well, he doesn't say the words I love you for this one, but he, he definitely uses Susan as the, as the impetus for the spell. So fans that have read through the, at least through most of the series, no, I'm forgetting which number book it is, but I don't want to give anything away for fans that haven't. But I think that it is an interesting parallel to a major event that happens in like book 13. So just 10 books away then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right around the corner. 10 books of Dresden Files is like three books of Stormlight Archive. So, you know, it doesn't seem that bad. I think it's less even, than three books. Less. like two books of Stormlight. <laughs> Although the books do get longer later on. Okay, so one thing that is interesting here is you have the stakes pick up quite a bit. And one way that that happens is you have a lot more enemies that are converging upon Dresden at the same time. You obviously have the vampire courts. You have the fairy, his fairy godmother, Leah. And you also have this nightmare spirit that's attacking him. And this is something that uh, the future books are going to do quite a bit as well, is bring together really all the forces of evil upon Dresden and let him deal with it. And he's always able to kind of worm his way out of it, sometimes better than others, sometimes with, with more or less consequences. But it just raises the stakes every time when you have these different forces all competing with different motivations, and it seems like Dresden is the only one who can possibly stop them. I also enjoy the fact that they he's con- kind of continued his pattern of introducing a new fantastical element to the book. First book, oh, what was the main focus of the first book? Just the sorcerer guy that was using the storms to kill people, right? Okay, yeah. Second book was the werewolves. Third book is now ghosts. And I think that they that that's pretty cool that he kind of explored the fact that ghosts are leftover remnants of the person who lived and that they have power in and of themselves. But anyway, he, he had a nice way of explaining ghosts without thinking that you could die and just come back to life in the in the series as a ghost. Yeah, and that falls in line with how the magic system works in Dresden in general. It's fairly soft, but there are some rules. But you can always kind of bend the rules depending on what the plot requires. Dresden's always able to summon a little extra umph, even no matter how injured he is, in order to finally vanquish the foes at the end of the book. You see that here quite a bit, especially because he was weakened as well. He was like artificially weakened, but he was still able to get the job done. Yeah, Kravos had um, taken a lot of his chi, for lack of a better word. I don't know, his his wizardness at the at the very beginning of the book. And somehow, even though he wasn't able to light a flame a, a chapter ago, now he's able to vanquish a whole building. Along with the discussion about the magic system, this also is one of the first times religion is introduced into Dresden Files, right, Stephen? Yeah, and I, I assume you're talking about Michael and Father Fort Hill. Uh-huh. So what do you guys think of how of Dresden Files' take on religion so far in the series? I think it's interesting uh, how religion is portrayed in Dresden Files as as having a certain type of magic, a little bit separate than like the magic that Harry uses, but still pretty powerful. So I don't know if that really happens in this book yet. I don't think you see a ton of actual religious magic, but it is really cool how I appreciate Jim Butcher's take here of not berating religion, right? He presents Michael as a real character that has real solid beliefs and they clash with Dresden's beliefs. Dresden is is not nearly as religious, if at all. 
But Michael is still a really solid character. He has his religious beliefs and there's a lot of power behind them. And so I'm glad that Jim Butcher is not like pushing an agenda here with religion. Yeah, I thought it was really cool how they made sure to say faith has... It was like faith was the power, not necessarily God was the power. Like Michael's faith in and of itself was what gave Michael power. And as you get introduced to more Knights of the Cross, this is going to become more and more interesting to see what types of people are able to wield the swords. And like you said, it really does come down to the faith. Yeah, so what was the name of the sword? Yeah, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it correctly because it's a Latin word, but I'm going to guess it is amor- Amorchius, Amorchius. That's my best bet. Something with, and in, in each of the swords has like an English relationship, and I cannot remember what this one is. Maybe love because it's Amor. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I didn't really realize that there were more swords. It kind of hinted at it, but it wasn't it wasn't really a big part of the book. Yeah, so actually, Ben, on fandom, um, it gives a little description of Amorchius, which is my best way to say the word. And it does say that Dresden notices the nails in the sword. A quote from Jim Butcher says, The nails are visible. Dresden has, does his best to convince himself that it's rust, not blood, on the nail on the hilt of Michael's sword in grave peril. They are worked into the metal of the blade at the base just above the guard, point toward the end of the blade. Completely unadorned, pure function. Though it's possible that they that there may have been designs on the cross guard or the hilt have worn away over time, so it's a pretty cool sword, pretty cool weapon. I I still don't think that those nails were referenced in this book, though. That might be a quote from Jim Butcher describing the sword. I don't know if he described it in the book that way. All right, correct us on Discord there, and I'm going to go on record and say my best pronunciation is Amarachius. There you Sounds go. a little more Latin, maybe Amarachius. Yeah, that's my attempt. Fair enough. Okay. I, I'm going to um, go back and listen to the to the audiobook, the way that they pronounce it, and I will put that on the Patreon, uh, that pronunciation on the Patreon page. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. Listeners can look forward to that exclusive content on Patreon. Okay, chapter two of Grave Peril is when it, the sword is told to first have a cross in it. So you're wrong, Ben. It has a cross on it. It doesn't mean it has the nails in it. There's there's a point where he says that they that he held the sword upside down, thus forming a cross because it has like the cross guard. Okay. Because it looks like a cross, as does any sword. All right, all right. Doesn't mean that it has the nails from Christ in it. Okay, whatever. Okay, shot shots fires here, <laughs> uh, listeners. Please tell us what the answer to this question is. Okay. Bottom line is that this is a cool weapon. We don't actually, I feel like, get a ton of weapons introduced in Dresden Files. Like, there's magical talismans and stuff, but I feel like this is, like, a really cool weapon that Butcher introduces here. There are some different talismans and mementos and things, and usually they have some kind of historical reference, reverence, even some callbacks to real events. And it's still done in a way that is just very tongue-in-cheek, but also just works perfectly for the series. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, real quick tell how this book was resolved, if we like it, and then maybe do some worst of the best. Yeah, so after the uh, the big explosion at the initial party, the group meets up again, and they go through the never-never to kind of sneak back in to the house, right? Because they're trying to rescue Susan. That's the main reason why, why they're going back, right? Right. And so when they're in the never-never, they come across Leah... I'm going to guess the pronunciation here. I think her title is 
Leanne she Leanne she it's kind of like banshee it's like a Gaelic word that describes the fey creatures anyway they come across her and since they're trespassing Dresden has to strike yet another bargain with her probably not gonna bode well for him in the future yeah it seems like anytime Dresden has to make a bargain to do anything in Dresden files it's gonna come back to bite him yeah especially with with godmother it seems like she is able to get the best of Dresden almost in every single interaction that they have And unfortunately, it is always Harry that has to deal with these things. There are literally no other competent magical (laughs) beings of justice in like a 50-mile radius of Chicago that can help with any of these huge problems. It's always Harry. I know. This is, well, this is kind of like an MCU problem where you're like, well, why didn't this superhero just come and get involved, you know, come help out earlier? And I feel like Dresden Files kind of runs into this too because you do later in the series too get exposed to some other capable people that like probably could have come and helped and I think that there's some reasons why they didn't but really they should have. What about Dresden's parole officer from the first book? Seems like he should kind of be helping out with a few of these things or? Well well, Harry's off parole now right so he doesn't need to be there any longer. He's back to whatever he does his day job. I guess. But it seems like there's a a white council for a reason. Right. And to jump ahead to the conclusion of this book, war has been declared between the white council and the Red Court of Vampires. So we are going to see some some other somewhat forces of good in the white council. I guess we'll see. And so this is another scenario where Harry chooses to save what's in front of him. Consequences be damned. You know, he's just like, it's like, I know that this might start a war, but I'm going to save the people I love. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so after they make their way through their Never Never, they bust back into Bianca's place and try to rescue Susan and then ultimately meet up with the Nightmare, who is really Kravos's, this sorcerer dude, Kravos's, what, his ghost, his supercharged ghost. Yeah, so they meet up with him as well as... As well as a bunch of other vampires that are waiting to spring a trap on Harry when he walks through the door. And ultimately, the heroes win. They, out, they're they able to kind of outsmart everyone using some, I don't know, some, some shaky applications of in-world magic. And the wrath of these empowered spirits completely destroy the mansion and the vampires and the heroes escape. It's a pretty good ending as far as Dresden Files endings go. It's a pretty solid climax. Yeah, I felt like it was cool how uh, Susan was bit by vampires and kind of was starting to be turned into a vampire. But because of Harry's love for her and the fact that she hadn't killed a human yet, was able to resist. And now she's on a tropical island somewhere, not wanting to come into contact with many people. So that was that was good. Right, she did the noble thing and put herself into self-quarantine, social distancing as a half-vampire. Nice, nice get, Stephen. Nice tie-in. That's right, that's right. Bring it full circle. Okay, so that kind of sums up the story. Let's go into our worst of the best segment to close here. Ben, give us your worst of the best. Okay, I know I'm going to be making Josh extremely mad at me, but I'm going to say that my worst of the best is Michael Carpenter. I am going to say that he's the worst of the best because... I was really peeved by the fact that him and Harry seem to have this rich friendship and rich history of being friends and going on all these adventures together that were never referenced in the first two books and apparently happened without Harry ever needing the feeling the need to talk about them. And it just seemed like he was just kind of this character 
that Jim Butcher decided to drop in because he felt inspired by it, which would have been fine if they had met in like a natural way. But the fact that we were expected to already believe that they had this huge relationship that they had never drawn on before was kind of bad, just bad to me. I think that's a pretty fair criticism. My pushback would be, okay, that's fine. But you kind of just have to accept it and realize that in the future, Michael is now part of the book. So I think it took Jim Butcher maybe a few books to kind of find his stride with with Dresden Files and really know exactly where he wanted to take the series. And at this point, he's starting to realize, okay, here are the main characters. Here's the plot line I want to go for. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. But like, I just don't see the decision to... I, it would have been very easy for him, for Harry and Michael to meet and to know their relationship from the very beginning, instead of believing that they had this friendship and had gone on all these adventures before we are introduced to them. See, my my pushback against that is that you have a very limited perspective um, of Harry's life in this, these books, especially in the first couple books. He's like pretty narrowly focused on the issues at hand. And so he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time about reminiscing about his past because there are other characters that we meet in the series that are pretty big parts of Harry's life that have not been referenced yet. Yeah, this is a first person, pretty limited scope of narration. And so when I'm writing a journal entry, assuming that I write journal entries, I don't include details about every single person in my life, right? I just kind of focus on the events relative to now. And if Michael Carpenter is not around for the current adventure I'm writing about, well, he's not included. Yeah, that's fair. I guess my pushback would be when Harry's about to go battle a bunch of werewolves, it seemed like he could have been like, oh, hey, where's my pal Michael with the freaking sword that apparently crucified or has the nails that crucified Christ in it that give him extreme power? Like, let's let's draw him in for this battle, you know? It, it is a good critique because it's it's a problem with any kind of expanded when stuff starts expanding, you're just wondering where the other characters, unless you have something like the Stormlight Archive, which has, you know, hundreds of viewpoints and stuff. Fair enough. Fair, fair worst of the best. Thank you, Ben. Josh, did you have one? Uh, it's been a while since I read the read these books, but I just remember being so sad that, like, Susan just nopes out of there. Harry, I feel like, is finally ready to, you know, propose marriage and take it to the next level. But it's a pretty tragic end when she just uh, says, no, I got to go and I'm going to do the noble thing and da, 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 da. So while it makes sense and while it is pretty noble on her part, I just felt for Harry in that moment. Yeah, agreed. There are other characters that are going to kind of get this treatment as well, where events don't really turn out for them in quite the way that us as readers would like. And unfortunately, this that's the case here with Susan. For now, at least. We'll see what happens with her. All right. Well, overall, I remember, I guess, looking back on this book, I remember it as being a fun ride, and but not in the top tier of Dresden books at all, I don't think. Yeah, I think this is just where we're starting to find our stride with Dresden. I mean, some people might even say later books, but I think it's here because this is where you start to get a plot line that continues from book to book and really starts to make sense. And that's something that I really appreciate in a series. I like to know where the series direction is. Not just the book direction. Yeah, and we do get notable characters like Thomas and and Michael Carpenter being introduced and his relationship with his fairy godmother, which also has implications for the rest of the series. So you're right. So to close my worst of the best, we kind of already talked about this, but it just didn't quite make sense to me that he was able to summon the energy to unleash this magical spell that devastated 
the St. Clair mansion and killed a bunch of vampires when he had already been drained of his magical abilities significantly by the nightmare demon entity thing. I mean, why why mention that his magical abilities were sucked away at all if you're then going to have him unleash this huge spell? I guess it just kind of serves to really strike home the point how much he loves Susan and what he's willing to do for her. But I would like a little more clarity on what Dresden's abilities are, because unlike Harry Potter, I feel like Dresden Files is better served to have just a little more clarity, again, in what the relative strengths and weaknesses are. You have a lot of different players, so I'd like to know if Harry's fighting up against like one of the Fey Kings, how strong is the, is you know what can, what can I expect as a reader? How concerned do I have to be? Well, yeah, that's a good point, and I do think that Harry is presented at the beginning of the series as being some like a kind of average Joe wizard. I feel like somebody like a wizard that says, "Okay, I'm going to take my you know abilities that might be kind of middle of the road, but I'm going to do as much good as I can with them." You know, I feel like that's kind of his shtick. Right, he's a wizard that's in the yellow pages. Yeah. So it's kind of like this guy who's like, okay, I got some talents. I'm not going to try and go be rich or famous, but I'm going to use them for as much good as I can. You know, that's kind of hairy. But then as the series starts to progress, you see that he is like more powerful than he is originally portrayed in the series. And it starts to feel more of a deliberate choice. I feel like the further you go in the series, but at this point, it might just be kind of, well, we're going to have him do what he, what we want him to do to get out of that, this scenario. Yeah, I agree. I'm fine with him leveling up and getting more powerful as the series goes on. But I would just like those things to make sense. They do overall in the series. But I think sometimes there's things like this where the plot requires some extra cool magic. So we're doing Yeah, no, I agree. And that's, that's a definite valid point in this book and in other times in the series too. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for this review of Grave Peril, third book of The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. We are going to continue reading through the series, and we are very excited for the summer-slash-fall releases of the next two entries. All right, see you guys later. See ya.